When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kublinska, and today I will be talking with Erin Huang about her new book, Urban Horror. Hope you enjoy. So welcome to today's episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am very happy today to have um, Professor Erin Huang of the East Asian Studies and Comparative Literature Program at Princeton. We will be discussing uh, Erin's book, Urban Horror, Neoliberal Post-Socialism and the Limits of Visibility. Um, but before we get into the book, I want to offer a little bit of background on our guest. Erin um, Huang is, uh, in addition to her position as the professor uh, of um, East Asian Studies and Comparative Literature, she's also an executive member of Princeton's Interdisciplinary Doctoral Program in the Humanities and the Committee for Film Studies. She is the co-founder of Asia Theory Visuality, which is an intellectual platform that harbors collaborative thinking on experimental and theoretical approaches to Asian studies. She received her PhD in comparative literature with a graduate feminist emphasis in gender and sexuality studies from the University of California, Irvine. And she is an interdisciplinary scholar and comparatist who specializes in critical theory, Marxist geography, post-colonial studies, feminist theory, Cinema Media Studies, and Sinophone Asia. So welcome to the program, Erin. And um, to begin the interview, I wonder if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about yourself in terms of your academic work, how you came to, to do what you are doing, um, what kind of background you have, um, anything that you'd like to, to share with the audience. Thank you. Well, thank you for the introduction. In fact, I think you have said pretty much, you have covered pretty much everything. Um, so I think, you know, I would try to maybe weave in um, other necessary information um, in, in many parts of my answer. So maybe we can just begin um, talking about the book. Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, I understand that this, this is your first book, right? So this book developed out of a dissertation project, I'm assuming, from um, Irvine. So um, perhaps the first question then I would like to ask you is, uh, very, very much about craft and, you know, how, how did this project come to be? How did you uh, develop this, begin developing this framework for what is truly a very sophisticated and complex book? So uh, 
let 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 our let your let our um, listeners know that it's possible to develop this this type of really um, compelling project. Uh, even for folks who are just in the dissertating phase and, and they might be awed by the work that you've put together. Um, yeah, thank you. So I think uh, by looking at the book's title, um, the first question that many people uh, might have in terms of, well, you know, how, uh, where, you know, did this idea of urban horror come from? Uh, in your research, I think the first um, impression that people might have is, oh, you must have watched a lot of horror films. Um, in fact, you know, I, I, I'm personally a fan of the horror genre and I do, you know, love um, to watch uh, many horror genre films. However, I think when I was a graduate student, I was really um, uh, intrigued by this particular question. Why is there not really any kind of horror genre film um, that we can find in say the history of film in the PRC. Um, there's you know, more horror genre film in the history of Hong Kong cinema um, or in Taiwan. So I think this question of presence and absence for me already uh, produced a question of geopolitics. And I think the second question that I'm thinking about is horror. Well, what really is horror? I think most people when they, I think, you know, in, for people who are living in a contemporary era, our understanding of horror actually has been uh, very influenced or solidified um, by Hollywood, right? Where horror really is a established um, economic and also aesthetic convention. And even before that, we have to consider the tradition of Gothic literature that is based in um, Euro-American literature beginning from the 19th century. And I think something that really kind of fascinates me about horror um, would be, you know, this kind of connection between the development of Gothic and also horror genre and also the development of capitalism. So even starting from the beginning, there seems to be some kind of um, um, connection, a connection that is not very articulated um, in detail between these two things, right? Horror and then also capitalism. So then I started to think that, uh, so I, as a comparatist, I started to think, okay, I am definitely kind of interested in taking on this Marxist approach, um, to, and then, you know, try to think about um, um, basically a, a wide selection of cultural productions. And basically what, what is horror? It's, it's kind of like a genre that grew from the monstrosities and also the ambiguities and anxieties that's created um, since the industrial revolution. So then, you know, I don't want to go along with the mainstream kind of thinking to think that, oh, well, there's, you know, there's just no horror in China. Um, which is so, you know, that, that's when I became interested in how do we understand more concretely the history of horror, um, even in terms of just the history of film in China. And, you know, how do we kind of um, actually expand this very, in my view, you know, this very limit, this narrow or a little, you know, specific definition of, of horror as just a genre, um, uh, and, and to try to open it up and um, to re-examine horror 
um, as a socio-political affect born from capitalism itself. So I think that is kind of um, the, the, the question that motivated me to start um, from the very beginning. And then, you know, throughout the course of all these years, then it's about kind of broadening um, the selection of um, the different kinds of texts that I would use to then discuss horror uh, as a social political affect, because just as I mentioned, right, horror as that kind of Euro-American Hollywood type of genre, uh, meaning this kind of body center genre, you see a monstrous body, it gets destroyed, you know, blood spills. So that, that, that's the kind of body center horror um, that uh, most people have in mind when they think about horror. But I have to, you know, ask us to consider this question are those horror films really horrifying? <laughs> uh, okay, for, for some people, it, it might be, right? But um, it's, it's not really the kind of horror that I am interested in. Uh, as I mentioned, right, the kind of horror um, that I want to understand is the relationship between this new social political affect that is born um, from our anxieties um, and also critiques um, uh, towards capitalism. So then, you know, it is, you know, much more amorphous, elusive, and then it goes in the direction of revolution and resistance, actually. So um, once you have um, uh, this feeling of horror, then, you know, you start to realize or you start to question what are the larger um, environmental, ecological condition, um, systemic um, kinds of exploitation and extraction that actually is creating this whole range of inexplicable, um, uh, excessive feelings that we might call horror in in the modern era. So yes, so that would be like my sorry. This took a long time, but that will be how this project is developed. Great. No, thank you very much. Actually, in in answer question, you've brought up. Um, two of the core ideas that your book really works to articulate that I want to ask you in turn. Um, one of them, of course, you know, you mentioned, you explained that the urban horror, the, the kind of horror that you are interested in, in writing about is, is related to the rise of capitalism. Um, and so this brings us to a key concept, a key question in your book, which is the definition of what precisely is this kind of systemic condition that Chinese urban horror or Chinese language urban horror uh, exists in, right? This is the term post-socialism is a term that has been often deployed, um, but seems certainly in your narrative, it, it is um, in, in a way inadequate. So I, I want to ask you first about your definition and conceptualization of the post. Um, and then uh, moving on to, to in, in discussing that, that what you call the slippage between capitalism and socialism that characterizes uh, contemporary China, uh, which would be perhaps the, the question that speaks most to the Chinese studies field. Um, I'd be interested also in hearing how um, these sorts of slippages and inabilities to represent are then related to the questions about media theory and really the 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 slipping definition right or the shifting ground of what an image is which of course plays an important role in your book as you move through various genres and media uh, in making your arguments about urban horror thank you for these great questions so i have i first of all have to say that there are five 
at least five questions <laughs> in the question that you have just posed. So I will try my best to, um, to discuss each um, quickly and see if I can create um, a coherent narrative for our listeners. I think the, the first thing that I would like to mention um, is to kind of continue our thinking about horror a little bit. Um, so I have just said, I have just created this connection between um, the development of horror and um, basic goth basically Gothic literature in the tradition of Euro-American um, history and also the development of capitalism. But something that I haven't explained to our listener is actually the combination of urban and horror. So I want to spend some time to unpack um, where did this urban part come from? And actually this is very related to what I will discuss the next, which is um, this kind of global post-socialist condition that we're now living in. But then I will save that part too a little bit later. So the first thing that I want to say about um, the urban in urban horror and this, uh, the combination of this term um, will be um, this text that, uh, that I was very fascinated by, um, written by um, German Marxist philosopher, um, uh, Friedrich Engels in this very canonical early text called uh, The Conditions of the Working Class in England. And Engels himself, you know, wrote this as, um, um, as a 20, you know, something, so a very, you know, at a very young age, and then he spent some time um, at um, his father's cotton mill in Manchester in England. And um, the work, the condition of the working class in England was the result of that. So, you know, I really kind of encourage you to spend some time to, you know, um, to read this text um, if you can. Um, from there, we don't really have um, um, the kind of much um, theoretical work that comes from Engels's later um, career. Instead, we have this almost like passionate observation about um, something that is um, quickly, well, something that was quickly emerging um, beginning from Europe and then spreading throughout the world in the 19th century, which is the emergence of the factory. Uh, sorry, I should, yes, I should say just um, the factory town. So um, there is this um, one line that I will quote for us, for us to understand um, the origin of the idea of urban horror. And this is what Engels um, wrote in that book. He says, quote, everything here that arouses horror and indignation is of recent origin, belongs to the industrial epoch. So um, in this very short um, sentence, I think this, gave, this, um, this sentence gave me uh, multiple different ideas. Um, first of all, the kind of horror that Engels um, is talking about is not really the kind of you know, Hollywood body-centered horror. Right. Um, and instead, you know, he is kind of alluding to um, a industrial horror, a kind of horror that arises from this kind of newly established factory town and extraction zone um, that grew from the colonial model of um, the plantations, for example. Right. So I think that got me thinking about, well, you know, how do we really kind of understand 
um, the history of horror in political theory. Um, and then, you know, the second would be how can we really radically rethink horror and use that um, as a conceptual framework, basically a kind of cognitive mapping for us to kind of, you know, um, to try to create a linkage um, between um, all these kind of effects that are actually um, rehearsing and circulating in a lot of the media texts um, that I deal with in this book. So how do we really see the relationship between all those circulations of affects? And then, you know, um, the larger historical um, environment um, um, that is creating and motivating the production of these affects. Um, so for, you know, so I think the next question you might have uh, is probably, well, what exactly is that um, socio-political condition that is motivating the production of these effects that we are calling um, horror. So that will be related to something that I would like to share about uh, my approach to post-socialism, which is the main keyword um, in the book's title. Um, so I probably will just begin from a personal example, and then we can move into um, the, the theoretical part um, a little bit. So, and then this is, uh, you can find what I'm, um, what I'm sharing here in the acknowledgement of my book. Uh, strangely, I mean, if you are a writer, you will know that acknowledgement is the last thing that you write for a book. And strangely, in the acknowledgement, I write about a space that never really appears anywhere else in the book. Um, which is my hometown um, in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, uh, a container port. So a much more developed version compared to Manchester, the factory town in 19th century England. However, for me, you know, they are, um, they, this kind of space, meaning the space of global logistics, um, shipping, transportation, uh, basically the kind of space that sustains um, the development of global capitalism. Um, uh, so I kind of want to think about, well, what is the connection between that kind of space um, and then the urban horror that I am proposing? So um, going back to post-socialism, I grew up um, in Kaohsiung in the 1980s in Taiwan. And that is, well, if we, if we think about it, um, what's happening in the 1980s? Um, basically, when, when people uh, learn the term post-socialism, immediately they think about, well, you know, it's happening in formerly socialist regions of the world. And there is already this kind of spatial um, assumption that is associated with the term post-socialism, right? So post-socialism is only happening in um, the aftermath um, of um, um, the history of formerly socialist regions. However, you know, I mentioned growing up in Taiwan is because, you know, um, post-socialism to a certain extent is definitely also there in 1980s Taiwan. And the fact that Kaohsiung is a container port really um, kind of serves as an important point of connection for me. Um, it is, you know, in the 1980s when all the, basically all the major container ports 
um, in China became much more developed because China has entered into the system of market socialism. So then, you know, um, the special economic zone of Shenzhen, for example, was um, created in 1980s, right? In 1980. And then um, um, we also have Shanghai, now one of the biggest um, shipping centers and container ports in the world. So I think, you know, um, first of all, we see um, uh, a very rapidly changing economic relation in between the People's Republic of China and also all of its neighboring regions. Um, and we see if we focus on, for example, Shenzhen and Hong Kong, then we see um, basically radical, uh, rapid, dramatic infrastructural developments that then begin to connect the PRC to once again, you know, all its neighboring regions. So, you know, for me, I the the, the question um, that I had in mind would be, well, post-socialism doesn't seem containable at all within the borders of the People's Republic of China. However, um, in um, the current, um, I guess, um, uh, way that our field is defining China studies, um, it, it's, it seems almost impossible to talk about actually ongoing imaginaries of post-socialism in formerly non-socialist um, countries in the world. So, you know, to summarize really quickly, the 1980s basically signifies um, some kind of transition, right? There's all kinds of talks about China is transitioning to a new economy where the world is transitioning into the post-Cold War, the Cold War has ended, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's this kind of rhetoric of transition. Um, however, um, you know, that then, you know, creates this question about, well, um, everyone is kind of understanding post-socialism in very specific and different ways. And how are we, so I think this project um, to a certain extent is for me to kind of understand, well, the post actually is a very clear and material history. And uh, what are some ways for us to kind of retrace um, the actual functions and workings of the imagination or the imaginary of the post. And the post here serves um, a special interest because, you know, think about it. We have all kinds of posts, right? Post-Cold War, post-socialism, and in, in, in the PRC, socialism itself is already post-capitalism, right? But I think one question that I'm thinking about the post in post-socialism uh, uh, and also the post-Cold War is, the post seems to signify that we have transitioned into a new time period or a new era. And yet the only framework or the only word that we have for that new era is the, the, the post that is affixed, right? To, um, to a term that is being used to describe the post-war era. And other than that, actually we don't have um, anything else. So for me, you know, that is a very interesting problem to think about meaning that we have to basically we are um, we are projecting or building these imaginations of the future based on the reutilization 
of um, of the existing framework that we have. So if that is the case, does it signify some kind of um, incapacity to think beyond and what might be um, what might be the reason for that? Um, and then there are you know many other questions uh, related to this kind of temporal assumption associated with the post um, that I discussed in my introduction. Um, but then, you know, I leave that to the more interested readers. And I think finally to unpack, you know, these very excellent questions, um, I would say uh, a few words about um, the time period that this book addresses. So actually, I'm not, uh, I don't really begin my study um, from the 1980s. I begin my studies from um, the 1990s and for a very kind of specific reason. Um, I am interested in a particular type of image culture that emerged um, beginning from the 1990s. So um, I think the 1990s is when we see the transition from, in terms of film, we see the transition from celluloid to digital productions. And then, you know, um, I think shortly before that, then it was the invention of the VHS, right? That really kind of radically transformed our fundamental understanding of what an image is. So I think the time period of this book that I want to examine from the 1990s to the present kind of corresponds to a image uh, revolution um, that I, you know, really broadly define um, um, uh, as a time period that began from the 1990s um, to now. And I think one issue about the image that um, I want to think about is, um, well, think about it. We really live in an era that is saturated with image. And if we're talking about horror and, you know, all these kind of media productions, that's, that's seemingly disseminating and circulating some kind of public effect. I think, you know, thinking about, well, what the image is, um, is truly very important. And, you know, for, I think for some listeners, you might, not under, you might not immediately kind of understand what we mean by this question. So maybe, you know, I, I will give um, an example. And this is the example that I used uh, to begin my book, which is from this documentary by a Hong Kong filmmaker called Yellowing. Um, he's documenting um, the umbrella revolution that happened in 2014. So um, I, um, I have to say that this documentary was not easy to watch as an experience because, you know, there were all these kind of images of protesters um, and also the camera itself being immersed in, say, tear gassing. And then, you know, there's like physical direct confrontations in between the protesters and also the police. But something related to this question about, you know, the image um, that I was talking about is, in fact, if you think about it, um, our culture, we're our contemporary world, we are surrounded by this type of images, right? It's images of, you can say, oh, these are images of 
resistance. You can also say, well, these are images of distress. It's a spectacle of pain. Um, and there are so many other kinds of um, examples that um, one might think of because, you know, once we turn on any kind of screen, immediately that kind of images come to us. So I think um, something that I want to kind of think through um, in this book uh, will be about, well, um, right now we are basically experiencing very intimate proximity to a lot of um, distant realities, um, right? So you can, you can turn on the screen and you, are be, you will be surrounded by images of war, um, disaster, trauma of all kinds. So then, you know, um, since we are surrounded um, by basically these kind of images that are saturated with some kind of um, emotion or affect, what will be our new relationship to this type of image? And then, you know, how will that um, change our understanding of some kind of community, right? So is it the fact that we are watching these images to form new, com new, new communities? Or in fact, these kind of images, they're just overwhelming. They provide um, another, they create another kind of um, social distancing, um, right? Um, so then you are paralyzed by this kind of image. But then the third option is simply that, well, these type of images, they, they are emerging recently. And there just isn't any um, way, um, thoughtful way for us to understand um, you know, how these kind of images and also the technologies that are distributing these images are changing our world. So, um, yes, so I hope, you know, that kind of gives us um, some kind of introduction to what I'm trying to um, do with the wide collection of different types of images and image production um, in this book. And um, I titled my introduction as the speculative futures of Chinese cinema, because in my view, by looking at um, all these media productions um, for, from the past decades, um, I, 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 to a certain extent, I kind of want to um, think or say that um, these films, they really record something. Well, what are they recording? I think what I want to say is they are recording the rehearsal of um, a, a wide range of dissatisfaction, um, not knowing how to feel, um, and basically urban horror <laughs> that I'm trying to trace um, in the book. So they are rehearsing these feelings. And uh, as we discussed um, uh, earlier, what is horror for? I think horror in political theory, in Marx's political theory, in my understanding, signifies resistance, some kind of utopian resistance. So then by examining uh, this collection of the rehearsal of these feelings, um, I think you know, I want to use this study of image cultures in order to think about uh, new strategies of resistance. Um, and that, that will be um, the kind of contribution that I hope 
the book um, is making in specifically the, the field of film and media and also affect studies. I see. Great. Thank you so much for the very thorough introduction. You've laid out the terms of your book for us. And um, at this point in the interview, uh, we will turn to the meat, to, to the actual chapters. Um, and we'll just go in order. Uh, each chapter is a fascinating discussion of um, a, certain, a certain genre, a certain topography. So let's begin with the first one, uh, cartographies of socialism and post-socialism, the factory gate and the threshold of the visible world. So you begin this chapter um, with a close reading of a film um, that uh, uh, one would say a, a very nostalgic film that is about urban uh, horror, urban ruin gazing, perhaps um, the piano in the factory. So if you could talk to us about this film and then trace how the chapter uh, really touches on multiple periods of the factory film and what, how those periods and temporalities interact with each other. Yes, um, thank you. So I think um, for many readers and also um, listeners, <laughs> um, the way that I put together um, this, uh, meaning the, the film selection for the first chapter may seem a little odd, to be frank. So I, I kind of created uh, this term, the factory film, Meaning that, uh, and, and, and I want to explain the origin of this term a little bit. I think, you know, the, the origin of this chapter actually came from um, this documentary film by German filmmaker Harald Faroki. He made a film that is called Worker, uh, Workers Leaving the Factory. And, you know, if you are into film studies, you probably will immediately recognize that uh, Faroki's film made in the 90s, which is a collection, his own collection of the so-called factory films in um, European cinema, in um, some kind of American corporate industrial production, um, and also in the films of socialist culture. So he's mainly interested in looking at how the factory and especially the factory gate is being represented in both capitalist and socialist cultures. So I think something that is quite interesting that he found uh, would be, well, um, in, in capitalist cultures, workers are always seen leaving the factory. And in socialist cultures, workers are always seen entering into the interior of the factory. So then in this case, the factory gate really becomes a, you know, persisting threshold of the visible and invisible world that is um, basically uh, creating um, our imagined division or, you know, our conceptualization of what socialism and capitalism is. And to go into this a little bit, you know, why are workers always leaving the factory? And uh, as I was saying, so for many of you who are in film studies, you will immediately be reminded that this film uh, title sounds very familiar. Why? Well, because it was one, it was the title, it is the title of one of the first actuality films made by the Lumiere brothers. Uh, one of their first films um, was called Workers Leaving the Factory. And in that film, um, you see the camera, um, pointed at um, a factory gate um, in Lyon. And, you know, you see the workers rushing in two directions, exiting 
the factory. Um, however, you know, already from one of the first films in cinema, we we get you know this um, very inexplicable phenomenon, and that that later we will explicate, which is the fact the factory interior. Well, what is the factory interior? It is the space of labor. It is the space of work, and it's also a temporal line that separates workers' um, working time and also leisure time. So then it serves actually a very significant function uh, that captures basically the operations of modern industrial life. And we see that being repeated throughout different decades in almost all capitalist cultures. So, you know, in, in all the films that Baroque uh, collected, um, no one is seen entering the factory. That is the only thing that we will see in socialist cultures, right? So in socialist cultures, then we get films um, that uh, literally enters the factory gate. And what is so interesting about, you know, um, the selection of um, the Chinese factory films um, that I included for the chapter is the factory gate is always there. So it's almost like a cinematic ritual that the filmmaker um, unconsciously needs to complete, right? To signify that now the, the threshold has been crossed and now we, we will be entering into the space of work and labor. Um, and that will be kind of like a signature uh, or a characteristic for a lot of these socialist films. And um, about the film selection, so um, I'm not really a film historian, so I thought I would do, and, and, and plus, you know, um, I'm now so interested in that kind of chronological listing of all the, say, factory films. Um, uh, yeah, so I think instead I use another methodology, which is I'm more interested in a spectrum of visibility that we get if we say, if we want to focus on, well, how is the factory interior represented in the history of Chinese socialist cinema? So um, something that I did was I, per I picked um, the first factory film, um, um, uh, Resplendent Light, and then also one of the last films that's produced um, um, towards the end of the Cultural Revolution, 1976, um, Fiery Youth, and then, you know, I try to, you know, put them on uh, a spectrum and I bring these questions about the factory gate and, and I try to kind of theorize, okay, so in the context of um, Chinese factory film, um, how is the factory interior represented? And then what might we learn from there? I think um, readers can read the details um, in the chapter, but something that I um, and interested in uh, mapping this cartography of socialism and post-socialism is um, even if we enter the space um, of the factory. In fact, um, it is extremely kind of um, problematic um, to try to represent work and labor, meaning it is actually really challenging to imagine a difference, right? What will be a different way of seeing work and labor. So, you know, in the end, it might turn into another kind of fetishistic approach toward the worker's body. Um, so I try to examine um, the basically the evolution 
of the factory space from the socialist era to the post-socialist. And in this process, that is how I show how the post and the imaginary of the post, including you know, socialism and post-socialism, how they are actually imagined if we want to understand um, the operations of those imaginaries by looking at um, the history of films in the PRC. So that would be kind of like the theoretical arc um, of the first chapter. Great. And um, so a term that comes up in this chapter and comes up actually uh, repeatedly throughout your book, also in chapter three, is the idea of the ruin and the ruin gazing. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more about that, because that's certainly a mm, an aesthetic that many of our listeners will be familiar with and would love to hear your take on. Yes. So this idea of ruin gazing actually came from a study of European cinema. Mm-hmm. So immediately it becomes interesting. It's like, wait, you are you are studying Chinese cinema, and you know, why you are borrowing, you know, um, this study about ruins uh, in European cinema. I think the study of ruins is really a very so ruin itself is a genre, right? Um, and I think, you know, this kind of ruin genre um, is especially prominent if you examine post-war European um, cinema, especially why, right? When the war basically ravaged almost all major urban centers in Europe. So, um, so I'm kind of really interested in um, something um, that um, this pair of authors um, is saying um, Andrea Schnoll um, and also Julia Hill, they have um, this really wonderful um, edited volume. Um, on, I think it's called The Ruins of Modernity. I think something that they said is, um, we always assume that ruins um, are something that is raw. Um, and, well, first of all, they highlight that ruins are ubiquitous in our contemporary culture. Um, everywhere you look, um, we are, there, there's certain kind of obsession, obsession with ruins, right? It's, um, it can be either about say um, nuclear disasters, right? There's a whole tourist industry that's built upon it. Um, and um, it could be um, fascination with some kind of documentation with natural disasters, we have um, several hurricanes, for example, um, or the ruins of war, et cetera. So that's, what, that's what I meant by ruins are ubiquitous in our contemporary world. Um, and I think one assumption that many people have is people assume that um, ruins are something that is raw, right? Um, so um, it's supposed to be about an object that um, is then will then be preserved or documented. However, you know these authors are suggesting that well, ruins are not raw. In fact, um, what we think we know as ruins is always framed by a long tradition of ruin gazing. So I am personally very interested in well, what are the traditions of ruin gazing? And also the second issue is, well, if we think about ruins, a lot of thing, a lot of people think about ruins as a space, right? So it's a, it's a spatialized area um, where something happened. But another way to understand ruins would be ruins are actually so much more about temporalities. 
Um, and the fact that our world is fascinated um, with ruins, it also kind of signifies um, well then uh, what is happening um, with our present or what is happening with our very conceptualization or understanding of the chronology of past, present, and the future, because we, we are experiencing this kind of backwards glancing, right, toward the past. So then that kind of traditional chronology simply doesn't explain um, that, that many things for us. So um, with that said, I think um, I try to bring um, the conceptual framework of ruin gazing and really reading it as a cinematic language and also tradition in Chinese cinemas. Um, and and that, that is, you know, the focus on um, ruins in, in both of these chapters. Great. Wonderful. So um, let's change tax a little bit and move on to chapter two, which I imagine must be close to your own heart because it's the chapter that really deals with gender. Um, so intimate dystopias, post-socialist femininity, and the Marxist feminist interiors. I found this chapter to be really fascinating. I was particularly interested in um, the way in which um, the domestic space and the discovery of a new type of domestic space, its fetishization and valorization, um, turns into um, this phantasmagoria of the interior, as you call it. And, and then your term... Um, for the kind of operation that you that I identify happening within um, several films of architectural feminism. So if you could tell us more about this chapter and, and these terms that you've uh, identified. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I hope, you know, some of you still remember um, our brief conversation about the urban in urban horror um, in the introduction part. Something that I am really interested in uh, in this chapter, which is an examination of um, the, the film texts uh, or the films that were made by um, Chinese woman filmmaker Li Shaohong, specifically in uh, the 2000s, um, will be about, well, I want to ask uh, new questions about the urban. And um, first of all, I kind of want to introduce a new methodological approach to the urban. Um, as I mentioned, right, the origin of urban horror comes from um, uh, a, basically a European uh, philosopher's uh, writing on a factory town, right? However, if you think about it, there's so much gap in between a theory that originated in Europe and in 19th century, and also the urban condition in contemporary China. So immediately that kind of uh, presents, it presented me with a question, which is basically how do I, how do we um, through film uh, ex excavate and also create uh, a new methodological approach? And in this specific chapter, intimate dystopia, the study of interiors, I think I really want to turn um, people's understanding of how to do urban studies around. So um, instead of looking at um, the expansion of infrastructure, say highways or tunnels or bridges, or you know, in, um, instead of looking at, oh, look at the size of these mega Chinese cities, 
which are all conventional ways to study um, the so-called post-socialist Chinese urbanization, um, I think I want to do something you know, quite different, which is can we think about urbanization by looking at the interior spaces um, in, uh, in, different, in a wide range of primary materials? And when, you know, when we say interior spaces, that is uh, when things become really interesting for me. Um, and uh, I think one thing that comes to mind is, well, interior spaces, um, the first thing, if we want to relate the interior to the process of urbanization, I think the first thing that came to my mind is, well, what about interior design, right? And how might we actually unpack uh, the rapid growth of interior design, the interior design industry, and also the, pro the proliferation of interior design magazines, um, and also social platforms um, beginning since the 1990s. How can we really kind of unpack that and include that in our understanding and study of Chinese urbanization? And um, so then I'm, first of all, treating the interior as a um, market socialist industry that is beginning to, um, to emerge, right? Uh, and then the second question would be, okay, so yes, we have um, these rapidly kind of privatizing interior design industries. But um, I also kind of think that this framework is not completely satisfactory because as we know, you know, um, the interior, um, or this kind of relationship between um, uh, one's body or one's sense of um, subjectivity is not dissociable from the living environment that one is in, right? So while we are talking about interior design, um, I'm kind of, uh, that I then became interested in, well, how, you know, from there we can read maybe a new discourse of patriarchy, post-socialist patriarchy, um, how can we really read um, women's new space um, um, as we transition from state feminism to, you know, this kind of really very um, amorphous kind of post-socialist um, feminism, which in fact is, uh, is becoming very challenging to talk about. Um, um, in, in, in the current context, right? So there is the transition between the state um, feminism and then also, you know, this kind of more um, uh, individualistic and almost privatized kind of feminism um, in the post-socialist period. And so what I did in this chapter is um, from Li Shaohong's film production. And Li Shaohong is a very interesting choice for me, especially the time period of the 2000s, because, and if you, if people don't know her, she was actually one of the fifth generation directors. And um, if you're wondering, well, who are the fifth generations? That's referring to one, some of the biggest um, superstars, um, right, in Chinese cinemas, Zhang Yimou or Chen Kaige, they have all sort of um, created a very international um, global career for themselves. So it's already very interesting that Li Shaohong, if you look at her career, is very different because she mainly focuses on 
um, domestic China. And I think through her filmmaking practice, um, uh, we can discover a lot of really interesting things. And especially in the 2000s, um, that was when China joined the WTO. So then, you know, there are actually a lot of changes that's going on in the Chinese film industry. So it's kind of in between um, socialist, um, a socialist mode of film production. And then, you know, the kind of global transnational co-production that we're seeing nowadays. So the 2000s for me is kind of like the in-between ambiguous space. So here we find um, a woman filmmaker who is trying to make feminist blockbusters, where if you think about this term, I'm actually pretty sure that nobody has, yeah, I, I mean, what can be, what, how can a feminist film also be a blockbuster, right? Because I think in our more traditional training in Euro-American cinema, feminist film um, uh, is usually associated with some kind of experimental cinema, political filmmaking, integrated with um, social movement, et cetera. So I think that is the kind of convention that uh, many people are more familiar with. So I'm saying that the feminist blockbuster is really a weird combination, right? Um, so, so, but then I, I, I do think that that is probably the most uh, accurate representation to Li Xiaohong's filmmaking practice. Um, and in this chapter, what I did uh, was I tried to trace um, these feminist legacies that um, she's actually a very fairly consistent filmmaker. She made um, several really thought-provoking films um, related to women's bodies, women's experience um, in the 1980s and also 1990s. But then it's when we get to the 2000s when the Chinese film uh, market started to change and that kind of forced uh, most Chinese filmmakers to kind of rethink uh, how their filmmaking could continue. Then we start to get uh, a production like this or a series of production productions like these, um, the feminist blockbusters with a lot of special effects and um, really kind of dramatizing, um, say, um, a, a woman's uh, experience in these large metropolitan centers like Beijing. It's about displacement. It's about anxieties toward the new, you know, post-socialist um, women's bodies that to a certain extent um, is heading toward the direction of being commodified and fetishized, um, just like um, those, you know, um, those other types of images that we are very familiar with in, you know, Western um, capitalist cultures, right? So I think uh, Li Xiaohong is a filmmaker. Her films kind of richly documents all these negotiations in between socialism and, well, I should say socialist, uh, a socialist kind of feminism and then a post-socialist kind of feminism. So instead of trying to define these terms in concrete ways, I'm more interested in, well, um, examining these films and, you know, using um, the, the close readings to tell a very different uh, narrative about um, how, how do we basically understand um, femininity in transition in between socialism and post-socialism. Yes, so that's chapter two. 
Great. Wonderful. Yeah, that was very fascinating. The idea of the blockbuster forum deployed in this feminist way um, uh, certainly seems unique, at least in the 2000s, right? Uh, so turning away then from the blockbuster and towards um, art cinema, we can look at chapter three, which is actually how I became familiar with your work to begin with, because a version of this chapter was published in the Journal of Chinese Cinemas, and I consulted with it. Um, Kuang Wei Kai's film Disorder is actually one of the main texts in one of my um, qualifying exam essays. So I, I certainly found um, a lot uh, in, in your theorization of the post, uh, the post as media time, documentary experiments and the rhetoric of uh, ruin gazing, which is the title of the chapter. So if you talk a little bit about both, um, both of the Chinese documentaries that you write about, and also uh, what I find to be a very fascinating introduction here is um, the work of Chantal Ackerman, looking at post-socialism from beyond socialism, um, which is a theme that uh, develops as well in the last two chapters of the book that we will touch on briefly later. Yeah, so um, yes, thank you for another really great way to introduce this chapter. Um, and I, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the introduction part, I am interested in actually many different kinds of um, media cultures because I'm trying to kind of figure out, um, you know, uh, uh, what th th basically this kind of wide ranging way of experiencing the so-called um, post-socialist time. So um, if, you, um, if you think about all the chapters in the book, chapter three is a chapter that is specifically about time and temporality. All the other chapters are more um, focused on space and also the geopolitics of space. So in fact, you know, um, I, I had a really kind of difficult time figuring out where I should place this chapter um, among all the chapters in the book. Um, but that's kind of more like a side note. Um, but I just kind of want to highlight um, that um, this is kind of uh, where I try to think about uh, how time is also technologically mediated um, in this so-called post-socialist era. And I chose documentary as a specific um, filmmaking practice to examine um, because uh, for, um, for one reason, um, if you are familiar with the existing writings about Chinese documentaries, once again, you might find this chapter to be really weird. <laughs> she doesn't go along with any of the conventions. And for our readers, I think I can quickly highlight some of those conventions. I think the convention, and this is referring to the new Chinese documentary movement, I think the convention to talk about the new Chinese documentary movement, which is basically a movement that is mobilized by digital technology, right? So here, the changing or the changed nature of the image is also so fundamentally important. Nowadays, you no longer, you no longer need a very expensive and you know, very uh, immobile kind of camera to film anything. Nowadays, you can make a film um, on your cell phone or any kind of portable uh, recording device. 
So, you know, to a certain extent, this is really posing um, uh, a lot of very challenging questions for us to understand, well, um, what, what, what is our new relationship with this kind of uh, proliferation of the image, basically. So going back to the new Chinese documentary movement, um, I think uh, most, most scholars in the field um, whose work um, actually you know, inspired uh, this study, what they will usually say would be um, the digital basically is mobilizing new kinds of freedom um, and therefore can be, can be read as a characteristic of the post in post-socialist filmmaking, right? So then filmmaking now can become, uh, it can go beyond the state control. It can become a part of personal filmmaking, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of emphasis um, on um, this Chinese term, xianchang, being in the now, right? And the here. And um, through this kind of digital filmmaking, I think the assumption is then we can get much closer to reality. And because that kind of you know, mediation uh, or that kind of um, idea that the state is somehow, the Chinese state is somehow mediating um, these documentary realities um, is, is, is considered as no longer valid um, in the new Chinese documentary movement. So I think I began my thinking from that point um, because I have certain, to be frank, I have certain doubts about um, this idea that we are now free of any kind of mediation. But as I said, you know, that's a very important and a common belief, right? Because, you know, we can just point our camera, our cell phone at anything. So so there, there is this kind of um, um, assumption or, or belief that we are finally getting closer to reality. I think in this chapter, I use that as a starting point. Um, and then, you know, through a collection of documentary films um, that I think is particularly um, um, suitable for the discussion of the representation of time um, in contemporary Chinese cinema, then, you know, I try to, you know, answer this question, right? Are we free of that mediation? So this is where I bring in the conceptual framework of ruin gazing that we discussed a little bit earlier. Um, and then, you know, uh, and, and then I try to kind of, by, well, by first of all, closely examine um, how these documentary films are dealing with the question of how time should be represented in the post-socialist era. Uh, well, you know, for example, in um, in this film, um, Stratum, uh, which I discuss um, in length in Tongfeng's Stratum, this is a, what we can say, a experimental documentary film, meaning that it's not in the observational mode. Um, it is intended to problematize um, the viewer's viewing position. So in this um, experimental documentary, um, I, I actually see a fairly um, common concern among many other Chinese documentary filmmakers, which is time is really accelerating, right? 
And also, this is not really a concern just for Chinese documentary filmmakers. It's a concern for all documentary filmmakers of our era, right? So time is fleeting. Um, time is rapidly disappearing. And I think, you know, this kind of understanding of the disappearance um, or the acceleration of time, it already began since the invention of cinema. So we, we've seen, you know, many, many films that's dealing with very similar subjects. And so then, you know, in, in this particular chapter, um, I try to, so I bring those questions to the, to the historical context of post-socialist China, and then to try to say that, well, um, here are a couple of ways that time is being represented, right? So it's either in this kind of accelerated, um, disappearing form, um, um, or, you know, it can be um, a kind of voyeuristic um, surveillance. So I look at um, several different kinds of documentaries in order to present to the readers um, a wide range of temporal experiences that's actually technologically produced by these documentaries. So to answer my own question, right, about whether or not we're getting closer to reality, I think my answer would be um, not so much, <laughs> right? Because these frame, so, so basically what I'm trying to say is what we think, what we think of as our perception, our personal perception, say of time, right? Or, or our, um, our sense of time, what we think of as something natural, innate, or biological actually is very tied to you know the technological environment we are living in today. And what's kind of really fascinating about this examination of the documentary um, for me would be how do we use documentary in order to you know um, have a glimpse at a specific example of how our very conception of time um, is technologically mediated and produced. So I, I hope, you know, you find something useful in this chapter. Yeah, um, it's a very wonderful um, introduction. I'm sure it's a great tease. People will want to read the whole thing. Um, we're nearing the end of our interview and we're only on chapter four. Um, so perhaps I'll phrase a question that can kind of accommodate whatever you'd like to say about your last two chapters. Uh, it's a question that um, we, we discussed a little bit also before the interview. So post-socialism as a condition that exists outside of just socialist spaces or literally outside of the uh, geography of formerly socialist countries, right? In chapter four, you take on post-socialism in Hong Kong. Um, and then in chapter five, you, you turn to uh, Taiwan through the work of the Malaysian film director, Tsai Ming-liang. So I wanna ask um, first, uh, what are you most excited about in those chapters? What would you like to share with our listeners? And then second, uh, what do you think about the, the terminology of the Sinophone or the usefulness of the Sinophone or how might your work be an intervention that offers um, a more, mm, how would I put it? Uh, a sort of approach to Chinese speaking cultural production that approaches it from a different, slightly different direction than, than the Sinophone. 
Um, thank you. So I, I will do the xenophone question um, as a way to conclude, hopefully quickly. <laughs> um, and I have to say in my, so chapter four was the last chapter that I wrote um, for, this, for this book, meaning that it's um, kind of something that emerged um, much closer to when I have a more, when I have a better understanding of what I'm trying to do with um, post-socialism. So I want to begin with post-socialism. In fact, initially, I didn't want to title the book post-socialism. I want to title it the post-X, <laughs> because as I, an X, meaning, uh, you know, you can basically attach any, any term that comes from um, uh, the Cold War um, in, in order to describe um, the time period um, that we have um, after 19, the 1980s, right? So um, I, yes, so I, I should um, say that um, some um, reactions that I get um, when I try to put together post-socialism in Hong Kong is, well, first of all, a lot of question marks, right? I've received um, comments asking me to consider like, do you know Chinese history? Do you know that Hong Kong was not socialist? And if it was not socialist, why are you talking about post-socialism in Hong Kong? Uh, actually, I, you know, I, I think that is really a great um, question as a point of beginning. Um, to use the term post-socialism, um, it's actually generating a lot of concerns and anxieties, right? And in this usage of post-socialism in Hong Kong, uh, it can go into. It can also go into the direction um, of saying um, that you know we are trying to map um, the new geography of the Chinese Empire, and then now Hong Kong um, is already a part of that geography. So it can go into you know it can go into both the spatial and temporal um, direction. So um, uh, one thing that I would say is I am. Uh, interested in understanding post-socialism, not only just as a uh, ideological or a conceptual framework. I'm trying to understand, you know, how under this kind of um, concept, um, um, new things are, new relationships um, among and between regions are actually being formed. So I think that is the main purpose for creating um, this kind of seemingly mismatched combination of post-socialism and Hong Kong. Um, and to try to kind of push the, the readers of this book to think about, well, in fact, the, the idea of post-socialism is mobilizing a lot of new economic, uh, infrastructural, financial projects. Um, it's, it's with this assumption that China is becoming post-socialist or socialism, some uh, post-socialism, uh, sorry, socialism as many people have known it has already disappeared in China. So it's under this assumption that the post is mobilizing, you know, all these kind of economic developments um, that is creating intensified connections between China and, and its neighboring regions. Um, in the contemporary era. So 
um, I'm interested in understanding what those connections are. And um, in the end, I found that um, Hong Kong is a very kind of important site for us to consider. Um, so in this chapter, I begin with a, um, with a film of mixed genre. It's kind of like a horror black comedy uh, made by Hong Kong filmmaker Fru Chen. Um, the title is The Midnight After. And something that kind of interests me is this film was released just a few months before the Umbrella Revolution in 2014, when um, basically the whole city in turned into a protesting site. Um, students and also citizens of Hong Kong um, gathered and then they occupied the busiest um, areas and districts in Hong Kong um, in order to um, protest against um, perceived Chinese interventions um, in, in Hong Kong's e electoral system. I mean, of course, if you if you are following the news developments on Hong Kong, um, what I the materials that I have in the chapter is already you know more historical already. So there are new developments. However, I do think the conceptual framework um, actually becomes um, even even more important if we consider the later developments um, of the history of Hong Kong. So I think something that is uh, quite unique about Hong Kong is um, Hong Kong is a space of exception from its very inception. It began as a treaty port um, that was given to um, the Great Britain in the 19th century. So, um, and then, you know, it was handed over to the Chinese government in 1997. So if you think about it, it's always this kind of, well, it's always a zone of neoliberalism, right? It's a space that's created for neoliberal free trade, even before this term um, became popularized um, in, uh, in the past few years in, um, in academic studies. So Hong Kong itself kind of poses a very unique question, which is you have a space that is designed for the successive um, and multiple um, control or occupation of foreign forces. So um, in, in this case, if we read a film, The Midnight After, um, something or a question that interests me, as I said, it was released a few uh, months before the Umbrella Revolution. And there were a lot of discussions circulating online saying that, oh, actually it's, um, it's this film that led to the Umbrella Revolution. So I think, you know, in, in my chapter, I'm not trying to prove that um, the, this particular film led to a um, political uh, protest movement. I think um, another question that interests me is, this is such a powerful example for us to uh, for us to understand basically the changed nature of the power of the image, right? So um, unlike you know how many people are studying film, meaning that oh you you read this film and then you you try to uncover how different historical events 
um, are represented in it. I'm actually taking the opposite approach because this film happened before that historical event um, that draws um, global attention. So then uh, I focus a lot on how um, moving images in this particular film um, is provides a, a example for us to understand um, the the basically the rehearsal of all kinds of sentiments and feelings that I put under the big category of urban horror. And you know, in in this book, I think I'm not trying to write a book um, by collecting different films that led to um, political movement. I think, first of all, that's a very narrow understanding of understanding resistance. What I am more interested in is the kind of feelings um, and also the kind of disorientations um, that these films are generating in their viewers and audiences. So, um, uh, so yes, there's still a lot that can be said about the Hong Kong chapter. Um, it's the first chapter that takes um, our, our conventional understanding of the geography of, of socialism and post-socialism outside um, a commonly legible socialist area. Um, and then it's second of all, um, I think um, the most theoretically thorough or focused um, investigation on um, urban horror as this collection of speculative feelings. Yeah, oh, and um, the Sinophone. So uh, I didn't really use the term Sinophone in my book, but then I have to say this book really is inspired by um, Professor Shishu Mei's study, Visuality and Identity, um, Sinophone Articulations Across the Pacific. Um, and I didn't specifically use the framework of Sinophone because I think um, the framework itself is based on Francophone, post-colonial theory. And if we think about the phone part, right? So um, the media objects that Sinophone studies or a more conventionally defined Sinophone studies um, deal with would be linguistics, um, language, and also literature. The subject that I'm dealing with in this book is media technology and also moving images. So in that way, I think I can very tangentially relate to the Sinophone in that way. Um, but then uh, it's, it doesn't really fit um, that well either. So I think uh, uh, the way that I see the connection between this book neoliberal post-socialism, and also, you know, a more legible kind of Sinophone studies is actually, if we think about the geopolitics of the post in, you know, all in our imaginations, whether it's post-capitalism or post-socialism, that is still, you know, um, dominating um, how knowledge is, is being produced um, every single day. Um, I think if we, if we consider that, uh, I, if, if we consider neoliberal post-socialism as a specific subcategory that, uh, or a more focused subcategory, 
um, that we can that we can actually examine, then I think it will really enrich um, the framework of cinephone studies and taking it into the direction of film and media studies. So I hope you know that um, is something that um, our listeners um, can can probably grasp, hopefully by the end of the book. Great, wonderful. Um, there's so much that we haven't talked about in this the truly rich study. So I encourage everyone to grab a copy um, and read it for themselves. And in the traditional sign off to the podcast, um, I have one last question for you before I thank you and let you go on, on with your day which is what is your next project? What are you working on now? Um, I am working on a new project. Um, the tentative title is called Islands of Capital, the aesthetic life of zones in Sino-capitalism. So basically I think my, my methodology is um, the same, right? I am interested in um, the relationship between aesthetics, um, media technology, and also um, uh, capitalism um, as a form of economic system. So I think I stayed fairly consistent um, in all my project. But something that uh, that I something that's new in this new project is I'm shifting shifting um, our focus to the maritime space, and this is very much an extension of um, the study of Hong Kong. Um, to a certain extent, um, as I said, you know, Hong Kong is um, a poor city, a colonial poor city. Um, and now um, with the combination of Shenzhen, it's becoming the biggest container shipping area in the entire world. So I'm kind of uh, interested in introducing um, island study and also um, this kind of consideration of maritime capitalism to the study, uh, to the field of China studies, which is, I have to say, very um, continental um, land-based, right? And it's in, and it's true. Like if you look at China, you know, it's it's a huge landmass. Um, so that becomes the fundamental conceptual framework for people to create all kinds of project. So. Um, uh, and I, I think this is also a way to uh, further refine my relationship to Sinophone studies. Um, so if we want to introduce a way of thinking about um, decolonial, postcolonial studies and theories to uh, modern China as a field, I think if you think about it, there are really so few possibilities and options. And many of them are confined in very specific areas, right? So you can focus only on Taiwan, you can focus only on Hong Kong, or you focus only on Xinjiang and Tibet. So, um, but, and, and, you know, if we uh, compare that to say post-colonial studies in European studies or in American studies, where um, post-colonial, post-colonial has a much longer tradition um, of intellectual history and also um, academic study, then I feel like, okay, there, there's um, a lot that should be done if we shift 
um, the conceptual framework to um, to the oceanic space um, in China studies. But by oceanic, I don't really mean that I want to collect all kinds of island. I think for this study, I mean, the title is Islands of Capital. So in fact, these islands are not exclusive to naturally formed um, geographical islands. They can also refer to zones, the creation of zones. So this is also very much an extension of um, Engels's um, factory town, right? That in itself uh, is a specific kind of island of capital. Um, and then it's very intimately connected to the history of slavery um, and also the plantation extraction system. In fact, we see the continuation of these kind of models in, uh, in neoliberal post-socialist um, China, broadly defined, right? Including all its um, um, neighboring regions who has, uh, meaning countries that is creating we're building um, relationships um, with the People's Republic of China um, under the framework of socialism being post, right? So if we consider that, then many other spatial possibilities um, uh, are interesting to um, examine. So the special economic zones um, and also um, uh, the kind of uh, architectural infrastructural changes that's happening along the way of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so I'm kind of, uh, uh, so this new project is about uh, fundamentally kind of probing um, how islanding, uh, and I'm using it as a verb, how islanding um, is one of the most important engines of capitalism and then how do we see that um, in contemporary in the contemporary sinophone world great i'm looking forward to it already thank you very much for your time and um for talking with me today and i hope you have a great day thank you